as speech pathologists, we, we do really get it. We understand the importance of communication and, and social connections. And it's important to learn that how one way of treating or, or working with a, a client isn't necessarily going to be what works for another client in a different state or from a different tribe. If we've got assessment findings that are robust, then we don't have to make any presumptions. And I strongly believe in the value and worth of what we do and the difference we make. Hello, and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature a conversation about an area or topic related to all things speech pathology. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Hi there, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Speak Up. I'm Annika Flynn, paediatric speech pathologist. Before I introduce my guest today, let me set the scene. This is definitely a scenario I have found myself in, in a few times in my career, and I'm sure many of you listening would have too. You have a little one come to your clinic room, most likely a preschooler. They're highly unintelligible. You do a thorough assessment and find some order and pattern in their speech sound disorder. You believe the little one has a phonological delay or disorder, although you don't really know why they are making the sound errors they do. You decide to use minimal pairs, maximal oppositions, a cycles approach, or another evidence-based phonological intervention. The child can successfully complete all auditory discrimination tasks, so you know they are hearing sounds accurately. But progress is slow or almost non-existent, and you're not sure why or where to head next in intervention. Enter my guest today, Dr. Rebecca Waring, lecturer from the Department of Speech Pathology at the University of Melbourne. Thank you so much for joining me, Rebecca. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Annika. It's wonderful to be here. So, Rebecca, I know you have some super interesting insights into this situation that I can't wait to explore with you. But maybe to start, what are the different speech sound disorder subgroups and why are there subgroups? Ah, it's such a good question. And, do you know, this idea of subgroups was really important to me when I first started working because I'd see all these children come through and they were sort of the same, but they were different as well. And I'd find that I would report to the parents what sound errors they were making, which was all fine and well. But then the parents had asked me why they were having these difficulties. And that was always the big catch. And so when I came across Barbara Dodd's work in her subgroups, it really brought home to me how these children are actually different. So um, Barbara Dodd talks about four subgroups. So phonological delay, so children who make the errors that we're used to seeing. So they're errors that you'd see in children with typically developing speech, but for these little ones, they just hang around for too long. So they're things like stopping and fronting, cluster reduction. And then there's this other group who actually happen to be my favourite, which uh, the children who are making um, consistent but atypical errors. And so we think of those children as phonological disorder. Now, these children are really interesting because they sort of come up with funny types of errors. So they're not things that we'd see in typical development. And then there's another group of children who are inconsistent. So one time they say a word one way and they say it again and it changes and it's really, you can't find any pattern to their errors. And then the fourth group are the ones that we, you know, see lots of kids as well. And those are the ones with articulation disorders, classic lisps, um, problems with R, um, F for TH. And so when you think about the children's belonging to 
different subgroups. It lends itself to the question of why are they making the types of errors that they are. And so when we think about those kids who are making the atypical errors, something's gone wrong with the way they've come up with their rules. So I think of those children, you know, um, who have classically have uh, difficulty around clusters. And so where a child with a phonological delay might turn stop into sop or into top, a child with a phonological disorder might say fop instead of stop. And so this led us to the idea that what's going on with these children is that um, they're not working out the right rules. So it might be in the case of the example with um, fop for stop, but the child's picked up on the idea that they need a fricative, but that's the only element that they've thought about. So they've gone, ah, I need a long sound. And so they've gone with their favorite long sound and put that in there. So it no longer resembles the word. <clears throat> and so the work that we've done around those children, and most of my work is around differentiating phonological delay and phonological disorder, is we've gone in and we've looked at how these children are able to abstract rules. With the question being, you know, is this a broad difficulty understanding and working out rules across all sorts of tasks, or is it just specific to language? And what we've found for phonological disorder kids is that uh, they have this sort of generalized difficulty with rules and working out um, the patterns. And so that's their cognitive linguistic profile, I understand. Is that right? That's right. That's what we refer to it as. I'm just wondering, yeah, could you tell us a little bit then about what cognitive linguistic profile you came up with with these subgroups? We looked at um, children with phonological delay and phonological disorder and gave them a series of different cognitive tasks and some linguistic tasks as well. And the cognitive tasks were all around executive function. Now, executive function is an interesting one because it can be thought of in different ways. So when I'm talking about executive function, I'm talking about phonological working memory, rule abstraction, cognitive flexibility. So the really the, um, the basic skills of which all the other executive functions follow. And so what we found in my PhD research was that children with phonological delay had difficulties on phonological short-term memory. So just holding the information. Whereas phonological disorder kids, absolutely no problem. They could hold the amount of information that we would expect for their age. Then we looked at phonological working memory, which is the ability to hold and manipulate information. So the classic sort of task of um, repeating numbers in backwards order. So it's got that manipulation component. What was really interesting here is my phonological disorder kids who did really well at holding the information going forward could, had no idea when it came to actually manipulating the information, couldn't do those tasks. Even the older children in my um, research as well who were almost six really struggled with that task. Now, the phonological delay kids also struggled on phonological working memory. But what was really interesting here was that because they couldn't hold much information, they were always going to have difficulties manipulating it. But they could manipulate all the information that they could hold. So it was the phonological short-term memory that was holding them back. So that was a really interesting difference between the two groups. And then what we did was some really interesting tasks around being able to work out rules. 
So the children were shown pictures and they had to choose uh, two pictures that went together one way. So that was a rule abstraction task. And then the flexibility task was that then out of the pictures they were shown, they had to come up with another way of choosing pictures that went together in a different way. Now, the phonological delay kids, not a problem in the world doing these tasks. They could pick two that went together and then easily just switch over. And it sounds like a really simple task, and for adults it is. <laughs> but when I gave it to the phonological disordered kids, I thought, oh, okay. They, they would choose two pictures and they'd get most of them right. But when it came to doing the task where they had to come up with another way of grouping those pictures, they couldn't do it. And I had children who looked at me and said, but I've done the task. And it really brought home to me how, how difficult a task it was. So not only did they struggle, some of the kids struggled to actually work out what went together, but having to change was really difficult, which begs the question really is like, okay, how does that relate to speech? And I'd have parents who sort of, I could see their eyebrows wiggling up their forehead when we were doing this task. But if we relate that to the idea that children with phonological disorder are having trouble with rules, just generally having problems with rules, it means that, you know, these children come up with a rule, say like with that stop example, that um, when you've got two consonants together in a cluster, you have to represent it with a f, so that long sound is all that they tune in on. And then they can't shift. So the idea with these rule, the rule task we were doing was, you know, the children have come up with a rule and then they're just completely stuck. They think they've picked up on the right element. They haven't, but then they can't see any other way of doing it. So we think that might be the reason why um, they're having their types of errors that they're having and also why they don't improve spontaneously. And the research bears that out. Yeah, it's just absolutely fascinating, Rebecca, and it, it makes sense. I'm just wondering, should we be adding something to our assessment to start differentiating these groups a bit better? Oh, I'd so love it if that happened. And that's what I would really like to see. Yes, I think now that I think there's so much more agreement that children with speech sound disorders are a really heterogeneous group that we need to start looking at, okay, let's differentiate them. And I think that's starting to happen. And we're starting to be really good at looking at the surface level errors that the children are making and putting them into groups. I think the next step forward is actually thinking about why these why they're making the types of errors they are and letting that be reflected in the assessment protocols that we use. Mm. And so moving on from that then, what does this mean for intervention? This clearly would have some implications for our intervention with these kids. Absolutely, because if we start to think, okay, these kids with speech disorders are different, then we need to tailor the type of treatment that we do. So moving away from that idea that there's one perfect treatment to there's um, a treatment that fits the different types of subgroups. So for children with phonological disorder, given that the evidence is pointing to them having this generalised difficulty with working out rules and then shifting, our treatment needs to match that so that we can be working at that underlying level rather than purely at the surface level. 
So what does that look like? I guess I'm trying to picture in my head, I can see myself doing my phonological approaches and I'm just really curious to know how adding this kind of level of complexity to what I do, how does that actually look? What does it look like? Yeah, they're, they're really not nuts and bolts of it. I absolutely agree. Because the treatment itself for these children that we're talking about with phonological disorder, it looks quite different. Um, it still uses minimal pairs, but we're adding this sort of first part to the treatment where we actually start getting children just to work out rules and shift. So we want to practice those skills. So uh, do you have in your cupboard, I know I've, one of my favorite resources is that um, it's a big container and it's got bears of different sizes and different colors. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we do. <laughs> These are one of the best resources that you can use for kids with phonological disorder to get that cognitive flexibility happening. So one of the first tasks I do with kids is get those bears out and I'll have a whole bunch of them, different sizes and colors. And the the little person I'm working with will sort them. And it might be that I start by telling them the rule that I want them to sort with. So I'll say, oh, okay, let's sort these by size. So we'll put all the big bears together, all the medium-sized bears together, and then all the little bears together. And then I'll say to them, okay, see if you can come up with another way of putting these bears together. And when we first start, the, the kids will look at me like I'm crazy. And I'll say, mm, okay, let's do it by colour. And then that they'll get started. And so we'll keep we'll keep sorting all sorts of different things. because um, there's also another barrel that's got um, um, different types of transport. So you can do the same sort of thing with it. And that's a really good one because you can do things with wheels and things with wings. And so as speech pathologists, I think we need to show our flexibility as well, just looking around and seeing all the different ways we can sort things. Um, and it can be things like with a tea set. Um, matching by color, matching by size, um, matching to different colored toys so that, you know, all the, the pink bear gets all the pink things and the blue bear gets all the blue things. That sort of idea. What's really key when we do this sort of treatment, though, is that we explain to parents why we're doing it because otherwise it does look just a little bit crazy. Um, yeah, very out of context, I'm sure. <laughs> but by explaining that the reason the children are making the types of errors they are is because they're having difficulty with rules and then switching rules, it starts to make a lot more sense. And then I give parents activities to take home, like sorting the washing, uh, because you can grab the washing pile and you can sort all dad's things or mum's things, um, all the child's things, but then you can do all sorts of crazy things with socks and T-shirts and you just need to be a bit creative. So we do all these sorting and flexibility tasks, but then we do things with minimal pairs as well. So it's almost a warm-up, isn't it? It sounds... Is it sort of something you do first and then you move into minimal pairs? Is that how you structure them? That's how I structure the sessions, definitely. Yeah. Um, because what it does is just getting the kids ready to be able to think in different ways. But then when it comes to the minimal pairs, I do that a little bit differently too. Because I don't know about you, Annika, but do you have you minimal pairs can drive me a bit nuts sometimes because you pull out the pictures and you say, um, you know, point to go, point to do point two, go, point two, go. And the kids can do it. And you go, okay, yeah, ripper, awesome. Yeah, most of them can. Most of them can pretty quickly, I find, yeah. Yeah, so the issue isn't with discrimination. So when we're doing minimal pairs, we need to be thinking, okay, this little person with 
a phonological disorder doesn't have problems with discrimination. They have problems with rules. And so when I bring out my minimal pairs, I'm not thinking about, oh, can they hear the difference? I'm there and I drive them nuts because I'm constantly explaining the rules. So when I say, mm, which one's do? Ah, do, do, that's got that front sound. Oh, let's have a look at this one. Go, go. Oh, it's got a back sound. And so we go on and on. And I'll tailor how I explain the rules to what type of error they're making. So for the stop example, I'd be saying, oh, that's got that long s and it's got two of those sounds at the front. So you just have to make it really, really explicit for them. Because left to their own devices, children with phonological disorder are not going to work out what they need to change and what that new rule is. So as an adult, we just have to be really skillful at explaining it to them. And it's, it feels a bit tricky, but it's actually that simple. It actually makes a lot of sense, if you ask me. And what are some of the outcomes you're seeing? It, it's been super interesting, and this is quite anecdotal with the, the lot of children that I've seen over the years and you know, playing around with these ideas. And they tend to fall into to two groups. I get these kids who quite quickly you know, I can see it in their face. They look at me and they get that we're trying to change these rules. And even in the first session, I start to see some change and they, and they start to play around with how they're using words. And I have to actually explain to the parents that I'm going to make them sound worse before they sound better because we're mixing. The whole idea is we want to mix up their phonological system to get it to set back where it should be. And so those kids sort of each week make a bit of progress and then there's always this other group who we start doing this treatment and you don't see any change in the first week. And they come in the second week and, you know, got my bears out. We're doing all these rules and flexibility tasks, explaining rules really explicitly. And they make no change in the second week and the third week. And by the fourth week, I'm thinking, okay, I'm committed to this therapy. I know it theoretically, I know it works, but um, I'm going to give it, you know, I'm, I'm trusting in it. And then it gets to the fifth week and suddenly you see lots and lots of change. I think, I think one of the pressures we feel as speech pathologists is wanting to, to rush to doing those production tasks. And I think it's some of our own need, but also that pressure from parents. We feel that we need to be practicing motor skills but if we look at these children as not having problems with their lips and tongue, but with problem, you know, I'm pointing to my head, no one can see it, but they have got a, a difficulty with how the rules work and coming up with the rules and shifting rules, it helps us to shift our therapy focus as well. It's just amazing. I just want to say, wow. I just, I just think it's so simple, yet something I haven't really thought through enough. But now that I'm kind of chatting through this with you, it just makes so much sense. And I'm sure people listening will be thinking the same and also asking, where do I get more information about this? Is there somewhere people can go to find out some more information? There certainly is. Look, we're starting to publish in this area. Um, a couple of things for listeners to know. There's a lovely chapter by Mary Clayson in uh, Barbara Dodd and Angela Morgan's um, fairly recent text, which is called Intervention Case Studies uh, of Child Speech Impairment. I highly recommend going and having a look at, at that chapter. Um, also in Carolyn Bowen's uh, second edition of speech, Childhood Speech Disorders, um, 
the correct titles in the in the reference list attached to the podcast. Um, uh, Barbara Dodds got a section in there about cognitive linguistic treatment. And also I'll be doing a workshop later on in the year for SPA as well. And this will be a, quite a focus of that workshop as well. So we can delve into far more detail on how to do this really exciting, innovative therapy. That sounds amazing. I will also put a resource list together for people listening and um, we'll have access to that via the show notes if people would like some further information. But I think going along to Rebecca's uh, PD is a pretty awesome idea also. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Rebecca. That's just been such a fascinating chat and I, I'm just so interested and just fascinated by what you came out with from your research. So thank you so much for sharing it. Um, I really love chatting with you. Oh, it's been a delight. Thank you so much, Annika. Thank you so much too for listening and we will be back in your ears next Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening. And bye for now.